There can't be any condescension in this relationship. There's no hierarchy. It's two educators sitting on the couch and having this conversation. It doesn't mean you're physically sitting on the couch. It just means you have a connection mindset that you're trying to connect with this person on the education level, on the fact that you both have the same goals. Welcome to the Society's Child Podcast, where we have real conversations about being a trauma-responsive educator in the midst of a significant mental health crisis. Hi, I'm Trish Senzak, a former educator, compassion advocate, and Jesus lover, and I'm so grateful that you're here. Are you feeling confuzzled about your students' behavior and needs? You're not alone. If trauma-informed strategies leave you wondering, what's next? Don't worry. My friend, I've been there too. As a foster mom and a child of complex trauma mixed with my experience as a teacher, it's led me to finding a compassionate, whole child approach that's evidence-based, practical, and transformational, and I'm so eager to share it with you. Whether you want to connect with your students on a deeper level, create a trauma-sensitive environment, or you just need a little bit of encouragement or support, you're in the right place. So grab a drink, a pen, or your earbuds, and let's work together to create a safe and student-attuned, trauma-responsive school culture. Society's children need you, so let's get started. Hey again, friends. As I promised, we were going to do a follow-up from the last episode where we talked about resistance to compassion, which ultimately leads to a resistance to making campus-wide trauma-responsive campuses. So today I really want to focus more on helping the leaders work with those on our campuses who have a little bit of resistance around this. So I think in order to understand this, I think it'll be important to kind of look at the whys behind it and then give some practical tips and tools about how we can address these situations on a unique one-on-one basis. So when I think about how I grew up, I think often about the lessons that I've learned. And one of my biggest lessons is in how I think. I was brought up by so many different people and so many different opinions and wisdom and so on. And I think I found myself later in life being a person of very rigid thinking, my way or the highway. And I thought I knew everything. I was one of those know-it-all personalities. And I'm, I'm sad to admit that, but I'm also happy to admit it because I know it shows personal growth and stability in my mental health. If we can approach the people we're speaking to with a concept or an overview of where they come from and how they might be thinking as a result of how they were raised, it helps us to understand them a little bit better. And I share this story with you because I want you to think about your resistant educators who are resistant to the trauma-informed movement or resistant to compassion. And I want you to think about them with this lens of compassion and trying to understand the why or trying to understand who they are behind the way that they're thinking. Before we get into thinking about the steps for compassion resistance and handling that, I think it's important that we look briefly at the history of the trauma-informed movement and where educators may be coming from in a stance on this, especially educators that have been in the field for a really long time. So in the 70s and 80s, mental health was not a thing. Going to I remember even growing up when it was time for me to go to therapy to get help and that was in the late 80s early 90s and it wasn't a thing. The people didn't understand it very well and 
I had to tiptoe lightly around talking about it because it just, <laughs> you know, honestly, it was naysayed or, you know, it was just a bunch going on around that. So it wasn't until the early mid-90s, I think, when the ACEs score and the research around that came out and they realized that, wow, there are people who had things going on in their early life, it had an impact. And that's kind of when the social emotional movement was introduced and people started um, starting to having a few more conversations around the prevalence of this. And it really wasn't until the 2000s and really within the last eight to 10 years, the social emotional movement in the schools became a thing. And it was in 2015 when federal recognition happened that teacher training started being implemented in our schools. So when we think about the history and we think about compassion and we think about educators who are resistant to this, we really kind of have to think about the context we may have to think about the trends and the changes that they've endured and gone through as they've gone through their educational career. We could also have younger people who might also be compassionate resistant, and there could be a, a lot of reasons for that as well. So I believe that no matter the trends, that we have to think about our mental health on our campuses. And notice I didn't say we have to think about our mental health with our students. We need to really consider the mental health of everybody on our campuses. We need to think about the mental health of the educators, the teachers, the paras, the staff, everyone involved. We need to make this a priority. If we raise these kids with this lingo, imagine a day when they'll be talking to each other and respectful and here having heart-led conversations and hearing each other and affirming and respecting each other's stance on something. We might just get to a place where we could have civil conversations. Of course, that's hard to imagine in a day where public scrutiny and public shaming and disrespecting each other. Of course, it makes sense that people would go, why try? A lot of times the apple doesn't fall far from the tree when we see students that have particular behaviors. And we understand that parents might be training their kids in a certain way that may not be respectful or may not come from a place of compassion. So of course, it makes sense that we have people who are resistant. I really want to talk about why we have that resistance. Let's look at the people who may have been brought up in situations where their parents didn't bring them up that way. So maybe they have a lack of awareness or lack of empathy or lack of compassion. Maybe we have a lack of understanding that people could have grown up differently than ourselves. As I've begun to raise my children, I've been very aware of the difference in lifestyle compared to how I grew up and where I grew up in trailer parks and group homes and with family after family after family compared to living in a suburban middle class neighborhood with a garage where I drove in every day, closed the garage door and then came out and talked to my neighbors when I could. And I, my kid, I did everything I could to bring my kids up in a different way than I was brought up. My kids might have a complete different perspective on life and they may not have an understanding if I don't teach them. So the other thing we think about too is people might be resistant to this because there's just simply not enough money, time, effort on the resources. So we, we put it out of our mind and we're resistant to the idea. It's never going to happen, never going to have the money, never going to have the support. And so there's a lot of resistance around that. There might also be re resistance around traditional beliefs and discipline or culture 
and the way we're brought up and the way we think. This is a big one because a lot of people have been brought up in certain guidelines and certain expectations and certain ways of discipline. And it's very difficult sometimes to add compassion to that layer when it's never been taught. And sometimes that has led to misconceptions about compassion. People think that it's a weakness or it's a it, we're pitying someone. And we really think it's compassion that's only limited to certain circumstances and only in psychologist or therapist's office. So why is this important? Because this is a universal human experience. And like I said a minute ago, it's not about the trauma and mental health of just the students. I'm not minimizing that. We have trauma all over our campuses that is just... It's just prevalent. But I also think that we have educators that have walked into teaching. I know I was one of those. I went straight out. I think I was in therapy maybe a year or two when I started teaching because I was introduced to therapy and getting my healing started when I was in college. And I had no idea what it was like to be walking into a classroom and be hand, you know, I was just handed it. So it's expected that educators walk right out of their life, go right into teaching, And then if we've got trauma, it could be triggered by our kids' trauma. So it's important that we think about this whole shared human experience. We all have those emotions. We all have the same pain. It may not be the exact same situation, but we all relate to to pain. We all relate to suffering. We all relate to what it feels like to be loved, seen, heard, connected, belonging. All of that mental health experience is a shared human experience. And those everyday interactions, they matter and they're relevant today. And we as educators, we can be relevant in everyday interactions with our kids. We don't have to use compassion just in crisis. And so it's it's about recognizing and responding to the needs of others in various circumstances. And so as you're thinking about the person that you know that's resistant to this and you want to have that conversation with them, It may be coming from a complete place of innocence. It's not that they mean to be resistant. It's not that it's intended that way. It's, it could be their upbringing. As I begin to get into the nuts and bolts of how to handle it when you have a resistant educator, I really want you to think in terms of the why before you address them. Do your homework and plan and know what you're getting into. Because if you have a conversation and come at it from a place of understanding and you take a minute to hear them and understand the why behind it, it can help you in planning your conversation. So we talked about the different reasons why compassion resistance might be there. But let's look at it a little bit further. When you're thinking about the particular person you're addressing or you're thinking about and you want to have a conversation with, you want to win them over, you want them on your team, you want them to to go with the movement you're trying to create on your campus. I want you to consider listening deeper for the deeper why. So based on all the things that I mentioned a few minutes ago, there could be some underlying things for educators. Number one, it could be fair change. It could be questioning, will this work? There have been many times in the years that I was teaching that one more thing, one more piece of evidence, one more trend was going to come and we had to pay attention to it. And it was like there were times I can admit I got to the place where I just rolled my eyes at the next movement that came along. Maybe they're questioning how well it will work. Maybe they have issues with their own personal trauma or burnout. And it's just too much to look at or too much to think about. And they have to stay where they are. You may not know this by some simple conversations, but if you take those few moments to get to know them, they just might open up to you. And sometimes lastly, it could be a sense of autonomy and control. For those of us who've grown up with trauma, we lost control a long time ago. Life was chaotic. So our brain keeps us safe at all costs. And one of those 
human things that we do is do everything we can to get control. And if you've ever met a controlling person, most likely something in their life at some point or another probably was out of control and this is their way of making their world feel a little safer. That autonomy and that control and that need to be in and knowing, okay, my classroom works. I don't need all this other stuff. I just, if I give in to this compassion, I'm going to lose control or I'm going to lose my sense of autonomy in the classroom and I'm not going to let them tell me how I'm teaching. So all of these things could be reasons and I want to encourage you to, before you engage in the conversation, go see if you can figure out a little bit of insight about what might be going on with that person. It might take you 10 or 15 minutes to just have a conversation with them aside or get some ideas on what's going on. So let's talk about the tips for having that conversation. And this is where the trauma-informed stuff comes in because I really want it to come from, since you're trying to get this implemented on your campus, this is part of the conversation of where you can be trauma-informed in the way you approach it. So first of all, figure out how you're going to have this conversation in a heart-to-heart kind of way. And I'd encourage you to research if you're not quite sure of what those strategies are in those types of conversations. You got to figure out what it means to engage this type of personality. Only you know the types of things that you've engaged with this person on and you know this type of personality so you can research and understand what it means to have a heart-to-heart and what kinds of things you'll need to do to engage this person. And the most important thing you can do is number two, and this is probably should be the overarching theme and everything. You're gonna model what you're asking for. What it is, and we'll talk about this in some future episodes, but just in a nutshell, We know that students do well when there's connection, felt safety, and co-regulation. Connection, everybody likes to be connected. There are researchers out there that talk about how it's an innate need for us to be in communication and in connection with other people. We also want to feel safe, and I'm not talking about coming through metal detectors type safety. I'm talking about our brain searches inside, outside, and in relationship four times every second to know whether my body and my sense and my anxiety feel safe. And that's another podcast subject for another day. We also know that students and people do well when there's co-regulation, when both people keep it together in conversation. And if we can both, we may not be, we may get angry, but it's about controlling and regulating our emotional intelligence in that moment. Doesn't mean that you're calm inside, but it just means that you're regulating yourself. Choose your battle, set your boundaries, and really empathize with the other person and seek common ground uh, in a sense of healthy boundaries. So of course you wanna plan the meeting, make sure that it's predictable and safe. The other person doesn't feel threatened. If you feel like this person is combative, of course you wanna go through all the things that you've been taught on how to seek support and get someone to sit in on the meeting with you. But the most important thing is you've gotta think to yourself, how am I gonna get to a place where I'm modeling this? So get yourself prepared to equal the playing field. And my friend, this is a time when you've got to do some self-examination. There can't be any condescension in this relationship. There's no hierarchy. It's two educators sitting on the couch and having this conversation. doesn't mean you're physically sitting on the couch. It just means you have a connection mindset, that you're trying to connect with this person on the education level, on the fact that you both have the same goals. So if you plan and prepare this in the right setting with active listening, using I statements, focusing on your solutions, all those things that they say to do with conversations and plan for ways that it's going to happen. So what are the things you need to plan for? Here's the part and probably the most difficult part that some might have. And this is where you can play into the connection, co-regulation and felt safety. Number one, be aware of your own triggers and your potential triggers for others. So in other words, 
We all get triggered by things. We all have moments where someone irks us and it can easily snap us. If you know you're highly reactive, have a plan in place for that. Have an understanding of your nervous system and what your triggers are and what's going to make you lose your cool. Respond in that way with stress, whether it's mindfulness or taking a moment to breathe or having the self-conversation. Remember, you need to educate yourself on your physiological response to stress and that the impact it has on your communication. And if this is a new concept to you, I would encourage you to start just mentally paying attention to your own personal body, what's going on, your own awareness. And so you can be more compassionate with yourself and more aware and understanding of how you can model this type of regulation. The mindfulness and self-regulation, it starts with knowing what triggers you so that you can stay grounded in these difficult conversations. It's important that you do this. And if you can manage to do this, it also creates a sense of felt safety for not only them, but you. And there's a researcher out there, um, Dr. Porges, and he's talking about how we constantly see how we can feel safe in certain situations. So your energy picks up on their energy. And then sometimes that can just, it, it, why it, we're wired really to prioritize safety. And then we go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. And there's so much science. Again, that's another podcast episode by itself. But I'm encouraging you to become self-aware. And you really got to think about how that works for you in the conversation. Your ultimate goals with each other, if you can keep these things in mind, is really it's offering continuous support. It's getting on the same team and having an open dialogue, regularly checking in with that person and making sure that you're both in an emotionally regulated state. So in this meeting and as a result of your meeting, you want to make sure that you are focused on your ultimate goals with each other. Besides the whole thing about felt safety and how you're keeping yourself modeling and keeping yourself in connection and felt safety and co-regulation, At the end of the day, as educators, we really want to have people on our team who are supporting us and going along with us. And we have open dialogues and regular check-ins and addressing concerns and having a place that we all feel safe to come. And then a place where we celebrate our successes. It's about that creation of supportive community where in that school, we might all really look forward to coming and working together. And then remembering that the ultimate why is the student success and that we facilitate that learning and that personal and social development, not just with our students and helping them work through their stuff, but what about our educators? What about our staff? Where do we have space to do that? Yes, we should be doing that in our personal lives, but we're on campus for how many hours a day? We need to have a safe place to be able to do that. Ultimately, if we're all regulated and we're all working on connection and we're all making sure that the environment is is a place of felt safety for everybody involved, we can't help but have student success. And we're 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 learning so much about the neuroscience behind all this. So if we can welcome in these new thoughts, this new research and all of this stuff and implement it on our campuses, that helps bring that success. So I want to go back real quick and just give you those tips one more time. Just number one, make sure that you're looking at the why and you're looking at what's going on behind the surface before you have the conversation. That's all about planning and preparing for your meeting. And then be aware of your personal triggers and your potential triggers. And then trying to have an idea of what 
their triggers might be. You may or may not know. You might know this person really well. But really modeling that regulation for them, that's number two. If you once you know and you do your self-awareness and you kind of get a, a sense of what your triggers are, you can plan ahead of time. And then really paying attention to the modeling of the regulation so that you can, number three, create the sense of felt safety for both the other people in the room and you because you're the person leading the meeting and you're the person working with this this resistance and you're really wanting them on your team. You're wanting them to help you create this campus-wide compassion movement. And in order to do that, you've got to have these difficult conversations. I do believe that by integrating these principles into the school culture and into all of your administrative practices, that leaders on campuses, you can contribute to a more regulated and trauma-informed educational environment. I know it in my heart. This can be global if we would just do this. This approach not only benefits individual reactions, interactions with each other, the teachers to the students, the students to the teachers, and then the parents and their relationships. It promotes the overall well-being of the school of the school community. And I really, really believe that we can get to that place. There, my friends, I hope you have it. This is super exciting to me to think about that you're listening to this and you're willing to implement this and go forward with it. It is, it is something that is so needed. So thank you for listening. Until we meet next time, please know that you're being prayed for. I cherish each and every one of you and thank you for listening. If you're finding this information helpful and want to join us in our Facebook group, check us out, Society's Child Solutions to Creating a Trauma-Responsive Setting over in Facebook. We'd love to have you join us and continue the conversation there. Hey, amazing educators. Thanks for tuning in. If you found this episode helpful, I'd love for you to hit subscribe and leave a review. Even better, share this episode with a colleague. And hey, I'd love to connect with you on social media. You can even join my Facebook group for some extra support and a dash of inspiration. I've left all the links in the show notes. Until next time, my friend, remember, you're not alone on this journey. You've got this. Keep making a difference and stay teach-tastic.